Return to the verse that we began considering last week, Revelation chapter 3, verse 12. Finish our considerations of this provision that was presented here in these statements to the church there in Philadelphia before we start winding down this study. One, maybe two more lessons before it's completed. But we'll complete, we'll complete the, those things that are presented here in verse 12. So let's read Revelation chapter 3 and verse 12. Once again, it says, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. Let's bow our heads once again tonight. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for, as our brother just prayed, the victory that we have in Jesus, the victory that was won at the cross, Lord, that victory that we can claim for ourselves daily, Lord, as today is the day of salvation. I thank you, Father, that that provision meets every need that I have day after day. Help us to lay hold of that, Father. Help us to lay hold of all that you have won for us through that victory. And help us, Lord, to give you the glory in all that we do. Beginning tonight, Father, with this word that we're considering, bless it to us, Father, and be glorified in it as we consider you, Lord, and what you have for your people who will lay hold. We give you the glory tonight, Father. We praise you tonight. We love you. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, again, last week we considered looking at these statements that Jesus made to the church in Philadelphia there. That church, as you know, as we've considered it and you've studied for yourself, a church that's characterized overall as being one that's, well, a presentation of those ones who will be taken up by the Lord not having seen death, those ones who are characterized as being him that overcomes in the plural, those that overcome. Uh, Again, exceptions to every rule, every majority perhaps, there are exceptions to, but this church is characterized Uh, as being a a gathering together of victory-seeking saints. Um, Perhaps you've been in other assemblies, and perhaps you've evaluated our own assembly. I encourage you to do that sort of thing. Keep it before the Lord. We examine ourselves as we come before the communion table. We should examine our assembly and our role in it and what our assembly is doing and those ones who are in a place of authority, in a place of public ministry that we're given to sit under perhaps and keep it before the Lord and and, and, well, pray for that situation, but as you evaluate those things, and as you've been to perhaps visiting other assemblies, you'll understand when I say that sometimes it's kind of easy. It doesn't take very long before you recognize the overall character of an assembly, what they hold dear and what they, well, establish their own foundation on. And I'm not just bringing complete criticisms by any stretch. I've been in other assemblies. This isn't the only place, and I'll say it. Far and wide, this is certainly not the only place where the truth is brought forth, uh, where we seek to rightly divide and present the word in its totality. I've been in other places, not even isolated to abundant grace, but you know, other places where you're like, this is where there is a foundation of truth, and it is established on the word of God, and I'm grateful for that. But likewise, you can go to those places where you're like, well, this, well, this assembly is established on a foundation of Well, social effort, um, social interaction, 
social socializing, you know, a lot of different things that you can find. It doesn't take very long, oftentimes, to step in and recognize what the character of a church is based on its desires and purposes and collective motivations. And Philadelphia, this church here, in that time, and those that it represents in our figure of today, those ones have determined that Jesus is their purpose. They've established themselves on him and a pursuit of him. That's what characterized them. Uh, We read in verse 8 where Jesus says, I know your works, we considered last week. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it, for you have a little strength. That's not an insult. That is saying, well, again, as our brother prayed just a moment ago, his strength is made perfect in our weakness. Sometimes it takes nothing more and requires nothing more than the strength to having done all simply to stand in faith. And the Lord is the one who strengthens us for that and strengthens us through that to go ahead and complete this walk of faith that he has put us upon. But it says that you have a little strength. And it goes on to say, you have kept my word and praise the Lord for those who will. And have not denied my name. Philadelphia, as a result of this, was encouraged to hold fast what they had. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown, it says there in verse 11. So, if we believe, as I make the point of multiple times during this study and other considerations, if we believe that salvation is indeed accepting the Lord Jesus, and that's that. It's ours. It's, it's ours and, and cannot be removed from us. Then if we believe that, then... Well, salvation can't be taken away than this crown that he's talking about hanging on to there in verse 11. Holding fast what you have that no one may take it, then it must be something more. And it is indeed something more. That crown of righteousness. Uh, promised, as Paul says in Second Timothy 4, I won't turn there, but it's promised to all those who have loved his appearing. That's what that crown is. It's not salvation. It's winning Jesus It's looking for his appearing, living for his appearing, loving his appearing, and winning him when he appears. And so, it's no wonder that Philadelphia is pointed as we see these statements that he makes regarding him that overcomes. It's no wonder to us that Philadelphia, this church characterized by those who will overcome, uh, well, they're pointed towards things that are more than just are offered, well, will be accepted and received by all believers. Uh, Last week was the first consideration that we had there in verse 12, that first part of that verse, where he says that him that overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. And I didn't really get into this, but it's as you see the illustration there that we looked at. Uh, We looked at the New Jerusalem, that city that's, well, that John was given to look at coming down from heaven, and he says, Well, he says, this is the bride. I'll come and I'll show you the lamb's wife. I'll show you who it is. And he showed him the city coming down. And so that city is a picture of that bridal company, the the lamb's wife, those that we're talking about uh, in this study, Uh, the collection of those that will overcome fully. So the New Jerusalem is the bride of Christ. But then it talks about the temple that's inside the, the New Jerusalem, which is Jesus. So you can look at it and see that there are layers of interaction, layers of entwining between Jesus and his bride. The temple of the New Jerusalem, the heart of the New Jerusalem, is Christ himself. And while he is the temple, it goes on to say that, well, the fully victorious is a pillar in that temple. He that overcomes will be a pillar, the center of that 
temple or, or part of a foundational piece that's there. So you see them in the entirety of the city, and then you see them in a small piece inside the temple, and there are just this multitude of interactions that are there, layer upon layer of illustration that you can see. And it makes sense. It adds to that consideration of the marriage relationship between the bride and the Lord Jesus. Uh, you know, I don't want to just sit and use my own... You married folks, you can understand. You married folks understand that your wife, your husband, your spouse is more than just a friend to you. More, more than just a... You know, back in the middle school days, we're like, do you like me or do you like like me? Like more than a friend? You know, your spouse is more than a friend to you, right? It's not just romance. There's something that's more there than just friendliness, and there's something that's certainly more there than just physical attraction and all of those things. There's something that is more there. I, you know, I grew up 19, well, when did I get married? I was 20 years old when I got married, so I lived at home with my sisters. We were as close as could be, I guess, naturally speaking. We were as close as could be, and there wasn't anything even close to what I have with my wife, obviously. There's just a differing thing, and I'm blood with my sisters, blood relation with my dad and my mom. But there's something that's more there in that relationship with a spouse, something that's intertwined there. And between the Lord Jesus and his bride, there is an intertwining of relationships where one is the heart of the other is the heart of the other that... Well, it takes a lot of study to really fully understand and to fully appreciate. But you can suffice it to say that that relationship is not something, I hate to use this term, but not something that those of lesser rank are going to enjoy to its fullest. It just is what it is. A full rank overcomer is, well, in a greater position, a higher position, a nearer position, I prefer to consider, than one who is of a lesser rank, a farther away position because they have chosen to intermingle every part of themselves with every part that Jesus is willing to share of himself. And so we'll leave that at that. But we understand that pillar in the temple of my God, the temple being within the, well, the new Jerusalem, it's layer upon layer of that bridal interaction. Um, and that marriage is what is being further considered as we look at these presentations here in the statement that Jesus made to that church as we go on there. Back in verse 12, or in the second part of verse 12, that is, that marriage is considered and presented there specifically in these names that he talks about here. Where he goes on to say, I will write on him, him that overcomes, the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, again, picture of the Lamb's wife, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. Let's consider these names tonight, shall we? Now, I was talking with Cody. I told him about a book that I heard about and started reading, never finished, by a man named Dale Carnegie. I've mentioned him up here before. It's going to slip my mind. How to, how to make friends and win people? How, what's that? <laughs> how to influence people. My apologies. How to win friends and influence people. Uh, yeah, Dale Carnegie, he's, this book has been a... It's been a textbook in colleges and all these things, and it talks about almost line by line how to win friends and influence people. And one of the things that he says that, that he, I guess, hammers on is to say, well, that the sweetest sound to a person's name or to a person's ear is their name. Names are important. We understand this. There's a powerful, meaningful quality to your name, unless you have some real insecurities. Unless you have some real 
uh, some real scars perhaps somehow, and I'm not going to go there, but by and large, your name means something to you. And it means something to other people, for better or for worse. If someone says, Greg Gravitt, well, as soon as I hear it, I think of myself, I think of my dad, and they're just connotations. Someone is calling me, someone is saying something to me, someone's saying something about me, whatever the case might be. When you hear that name, you might first off think the guy who talks up front. You might think uh, my brother. You might think my friend. You might think a number of other connotations that, well, again, for better or for worse, you know, I understand my name might be a bad word to some people. It is what it is. Names are powerful things uh, on a natural level. And they can, well, they can evoke some emotions. And they can evoke some, they can stir some things, let me say it that way. Proverbs 22 tells us that a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. A good name is something to be sought, the legacy that is attached to your name and who you are, whatever that might be. It brings memories and connotations and all of those things. If you look in Scripture, I won't go there, but well, back during the various captivities that took place in the Israelite people, you can read about the different ones who, well, they're captors. Changed their names, didn't they? Um, well, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. I think I got their names right. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's what they were changed to. By Nebuchadnezzar, or someone that was appointed by the Babylonian king, to change their names because it impressed upon them that I own you. I own you because I can change your very identity. I won't go into all the depths that are there, but that was entirely their purpose, was to impose upon them that even their identity was owned by the king, by the one who was, well, over them. Uh, it reflected that there was an authority there and a submission that was supposed to be there as a result. Now, we also know that the king of kings changed names. Um, not his own name, but he changed the names of some of his own subjects. I could take you to Abraham, Sarah, Israel, Joshua, that man Paul that we consider oftentimes, all of their names were changed by the Lord. And the Lord had something he wanted to say in them and through them. Wanted to change their names to, well, in a way to bless them through those changes. To give them a different mindset as he perhaps caused them to pivot just a bit on what they were doing and where he had them going. Now, in Revelation 2 and verse 17, on the second half of that, We've considered him that overcomes receiving a new name. That's one of the provisions that is given to them. It was stated there to the church in Pergamos in Revelation 2.17. Remember when we considered this when Jesus says, And I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Do you remember that white stone, saints? Remember it was, well, we considered how back in the day they cast lots, they cast stones, they cast the Urim and the Thummim, or did whatever what was directed for the high priest to deal with the Urim and the Thummim, because they were looking for God's will. They're trying to determine God's will uh, with those things. And we looked at the history of those stones, and in that time, people cast their votes with those stones. That was just two examples of how it applied. People cast their votes. They would put their white stone, historians tell me, the white stone in the respective urn of the elector that they wanted, or the... Uh, Electeer, the candidate that they wanted, you might say. They put that white stone there. Or there were times when they would indeed write a name on a stone and throw it into the urn. And, and again, I'm not going to take that and reteach that lesson there. But you remember that white stone of election. And when Jesus gave 
promises that white stone. He was making plain his will was unalterable there. For all who will believe, God says for all who will believe, he, he only gives a white stone. This is my election for you. It cannot change. There is no alternative stone. There is no alternative, no alternate option for you. If you have believed in Jesus, you are mine. He's cast his vote. We are part of his elect. And his unerring authority says, I have given you this name, a new name written upon this stone. This is yours because, well, for all intents and purposes, I own you now. And it's good to be owned by the Almighty God. It's good to be owned by that king because he is no tyrant. He's a God of grace and a God of kindness. And so when he gives them that new name, he gives them a new creation, as we considered recently. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He, he is something different than he was. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new, including the name that the Lord has for you that will be presented to you. They are a new person. They have a new lineage. They're in a new family. No longer just merely in the flesh you know, of Adam's line. They're in the new Adam's line. They're given a new father, you might say. Now, the Lord is the creator of all things, but he becomes Abba, right? Galatians 4 and verse 6. Because you are sons, because you have accepted, because you have been brought into this lineage, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts. Jesus, come into my heart. That's all that it is. That's all that's needed. It's to open your heart and express with your mouth and your voice and express with your desire that you want to be saved. Jesus, come into my heart. And that's what he does. He sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son, part of the family. And if part of the family, if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. And so, that's what he's referring to there when he's speaking to Pergamos. Adopted sons receive a new name. That of their father. And so he continues that thought there in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 12. What we just opened with, I will write on him the name of my God. The believer will receive the name of his father. It will be written upon him, part of the family. I imagine a number of you all have seen such videos as I've seen a number of times where someone, you know, a foster child... Or maybe someone had a tragedy in their family and, and, and now they're living with their aunt and their uncle or, or whatever the case might be. A stepdad or a stepmother comes in and that one gives them the gift of adopting them. It's always a tear-jerking moment. It's always a sweet thing. But, you know, I saw one one time where a kid, you know, went to play a football game or something. And his stepdad came in and his, he wanted to be adopted. So he took his name and there it was on the back of his jersey. It sounds a little cheesy. And I say it kind of just quickly and in passing, but it was a sweet moment. He's like, I want your name. I want your name. I want you to adopt me. Adopted sons, adopted daughters receive a new name, and it's that of their father. It means something to them. Um, but as always, as we've been considering this, it's not merely to be a son of God that we're looking for. It's not merely to be a child of God. I'm grateful for the opportunity. Don't get me wrong. I'm grateful to be in the lineage. I feel like I say this quite often. I feel like you believe it often. <laughs> We're grateful to be in the lineage of God, in the family of God, and to have His name. But there are more names to be had. There's something more that He wants to write on us. 
as it were. And we see that in the second part of this verse, verse 12. In the name of the city of my God. The name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. And what did we say the new Jerusalem was? It's the Lamb's wife, which comes down out of heaven from my God. He wants to earmark us for that. And we can be earmarked. Philadelphia was told, hold on to what you have. Don't let anyone take it from you, which kind of bears out that thought that this is yours. The only person who can wreck this for you is you, right? I mean, there, there is a real reality to this. The Lord wants to have us victorious. The Lord wants us to lay hold of us. He's will lay hold of him. He's laid hold of us, apprehended us, and is just waiting for us to reach back and hold back. There is something to be said about not letting someone take what I have already, this crown of righteousness. It's not to say that I'm perfected. It's not to say Paul said himself, I I don't count myself to have apprehended. I have not done it. But there is laid up for something he found out later, and he's pursuing that. I leave these things behind so that I might pursue pursue what he's promising to me. And so there it is, the new Jerusalem. I want to write this on you is what he's saying. And it is the Lamb's wife. Let's read that passage again in Revelation 21 and verse 9. Revelation 21 verse 9 speaks of this new Jerusalem. And it says there, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Prepared, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, it says earlier in the, in the chapter there. It's obvious that this is more than just being in the family. This is something that is extra. This is something, certainly for those with a new creation and with a new name, but they're offered something further. Something, well, as they're changed into the image of Christ to walk with Him, to abide with Him to live for Him, to live with Him, to humbly look for Him in this life, they're ultimately rewarded with being, well, called up by Him. And, and to be a part of this makeup, to be a part of that actual construct. Uh, in Luke 14, I want to not spend too much time on this for time's sake, but in Luke 14, consider that parable that's presented there, that Jesus gave there in Luke 14 and verse 8, to remind you, that it's not just, well, it's not just enough to be there. Be happy that you're there. Be humble that, that He has called you. But look for, look for Him and realize that He's looking for you. Let's read this in Luke 14, verse 8. He says, When you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by Him. And He who invited you and, come, he invited you and Him come and say to you, Give place to this man. What a horrible feeling that would be. Give place to this man. He's more important than you are. And then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, and the Lord has invited us, go and sit down in the lowest place so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The pictures are clear when there are a lot of applications to this, but in regards to us in this age and the context of what we're considering here, you understand we've been invited, invited in, we are a part of the family, and we are grateful to be there. 
But if you're going to go and sit in the lowest place, which we should, we should recognize I'm not worthy of going any place, but my eye is on that one who's at the head of the table, and I'm waiting for him. I'm watching him. I'm not going to sit and say, move back, everybody. I'm sitting right here, sitting right here, but this is my chair. No, I'm going to sit here, but I'm waiting on that one. Waiting for that one at this, just the quickest moment, the briefest moment when he says, hey, <laughs> I want to stand up and be ready. If one is overjoyed to be there, simply because they are there, their eyes will be on him. And the Lord Jesus notices that interest. He rewards that interest. He recognizes if you're looking at him in this life. He sees. He knows those who believe him, certainly. He seeks those who seek Him. One of the things that I consider, well, quite often for myself, and I have it written down in a number of different places that I look at from time to time, is to be counted worthy of His best is to have counted Him worthy. That's what it comes down to at the end of our lives. To be counted worthy of His best is for us to have counted Him worthy of anything and everything. Our best throughout our lives. The Lord knows who has counted him worthy, and he rewards that by saying simply, if this is what I mean to you, here, here I am. Here I am. If we want his best and we pursue his best, he won't neglect to share that. He won't neglect to see that in us and want to give it to us. I won't take you there, but you remember in Luke 25, those ten virgins that were there. They're given opportunity to join the bridegroom when he came, but instead they slumbered and slept. And then he came. Uh, he came in, in Luke 25 there. And they, well, five of them had no oil for their lamps. And they, they were like, we don't have oil. Help us. And I'm like, no, we're not going to. The other ones were telling them, no, we can't give you oil for your lamps or else we won't have it and we wouldn't see him. They didn't recognize when it was time to be called into that inner circle and to have the name of this city written upon them is to be. Well, that one has been looking for them and wanted to enter in. To be earmarked for entry, you might say. All of God's people will partake, will partake of the glory of that city. Um, well, it says there that, well, I think it's in Revelation 21, that those of the nations that are saved will bask in its light, essentially. That the light will be present there and they'll go in and out. Uh, but to be part of that. To be actually a part of the structure. Uh, That's reserved for those ones who desired and lived for that desire. Uh, That being said, returning back to the last name that will be presented there in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 12. Him that overcomes, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. Then it goes on to say, and I will write on him... My new name. My new name. This is something farther still. Uh, More than just having my own new name. More than having, as wonderful as it is, having the name of God written on me. More than having the name of that new Jerusalem. This is the name of Jesus himself. Uh, Remember when we talked about Boaz and Ruth here recently? We're going to consider Boaz, this man. That man, Boaz, was, well, a picture of Jesus in his own right. He desired and he intended to redeem Ruth, if you recall the story. 
He wanted to redeem her uh, and do according to the law what was, well, what was expected of a kinsman. But he certainly wanted more. He wanted to marry her. He wanted to make her his own wife. But you'll also recall that Ruth was a widow. Uh, A widow had very little assured to them in that day, had very little social standing, had very little benefit and profit on a cultural and social level. And so under the law, that near kinsman was given the opportunity, and again, the expectation was there, that they would do right by that one and give them an opportunity. And they called it, uh, well, you can look in a number of different places where it's presented, but in Deuteronomy chapter 25, it speaks of that expectation. It speaks of the dishonor that comes when someone doesn't want to do that uh, for his brother's wife. It says there in verse 25 and verse 7 of Deuteronomy, if the man does not want to take his brother's wife when the brother has died, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. He was expected to, well, produce a child with that, with that one so that there might be a lineage that was there. Certainly not something that we would look for in our own culture, in our own society, but this was under the law of that time, and there were pictures that were presented there uh, through the Lord's law here. Now, uh, a name and a lineage was important in those days. It held, well, it was kind of a lifeline for those ones who didn't have anything of themselves. And Ruth was a Moabitess uh, to begin with. She was a foreigner. She was coming back to a place that was foreign to her. She wasn't accepted in their culture, or the Moabites weren't accepted in their culture. If you look in Scripture, you see that the Moabites weren't supposed to be in their worship, and there are a number of different things there that were strikes against her. And yet... Ruth valued Boaz, and Boaz valued Ruth. There was a intertwining that was there. There was a commitment that was there to these ones. And Boaz wanted to redeem her. Boaz wanted to do right by her, wanted to raise up a lineage for her, but he wanted to be involved himself. And he demonstrated that. He demonstrated that value, uh, going farther than just redeeming her. In Ruth chapter 4 and verse 10, it says there, this is Boaz's words, After that near kinsman said, I can't do this. I don't want to wreck my own inheritance. I'm not interested in raising this up. And there would would have been a measure of shame that was involved there. But Boaz stepped in and said, "Eh, forget it. Step aside then. Thank you very much. Step aside. He says, move over. Not move over. (laughs) He says, moreover. A little Freudian there. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren and from his position at the gate. You are witnesses this day. And so, uh, this is how I remember Ruth. In Ruth chapter 1, Ruth decided decided to go with Naomi. In Ruth chapter 2, Ruth resided with her there in Bethlehem in Judah. Ruth chapter 3, Ruth abided in the good graces, you might say, of Boaz and abided in that relationship with him. And then in chapter 4, Ruth was brided with with Boaz, or brided to Boaz when he saw, well, that she was committed to him. It says there in Ruth chapter 2 and verse 11, what prompted Boaz to bride this one, to make her his bride, not just to raise up a seed, raise up a line for her, uh, to invest for her in, in grace and just in kindness to her. 
but to actually make her his wife. It says, Boaz answered and said to her, It has been fully reported to me, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. Fully understood by me, Boaz says. Very much like what Jesus knows. Very much like what Jesus sees. It's been fully reported to him. Who desires to be, well, who desires to be at that closest place? It's been fully reported to me all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. And how you have left your father and your mother and the land of your birth. Have some of us been called to leave those ones that are dear to us as we pursue the things of God? Well, all of us have been called to some measure to be well, prepared to leave relationships, to leave situations that, well, would hinder us and would weigh us down. Uh, you've left your father and your mother in the land of your birth and have come to a people whom you did not know before. The Lord repay your work and a full reward. A full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. It's a beautiful relationship between this man and this woman. And you can see that there was a great deal of admiration between this man and this woman. Now exponentiate that to a measure that we can't fully understand. And that's what our respective bridegroom considers for us. He wants a full reward to be given to us. Boaz committed to Ruth. He didn't just do what was expected, the bare minimum. He committed to her and he made her his own. And he gave her his name, you might say. We don't know what his surname was. I, I don't know, you know exactly what that means. But you know, in the modern day patriarchal society, that is such a bad word these days. Oftentimes, I think it still is the tradition that the woman takes the man's name. And that's what we're familiar with. He gave her his name, you might say. And Jesus offers his name to us. Saints, when the Lord casts his vote for you, when he says, this is my elect because they believe. When he says, this, there is no other option for you if you've believed. I'm not going to give you the option of being lost. You are mine, mine, mine. You are a new creation. I'm not going to remove that from you. There's further blessing that's ours. There's more blessing than just receiving the name of the Father. There's more designation that's there. There's more appointment that's there. And there's more stuff attached to that relationship and embedded in that relationship. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9, Therefore know that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love Him and keep His commandments. He recognizes who those are, who love Him and go after Him. 1 Corinthians 2, Paul says, As it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love Him. I'm hesitant to say this, but there are often times, those times when I'll speak with somebody, or have said it even myself sometimes, when I'm trying to intercede for somebody, or perhaps shade them in a better light than than perhaps what they might deserve in regards to their actions and that sort of thing. How's so-and-so doing? Ah, well, you know, he loves the Lord, but <laughs> there's an attachment there. He loves the Lord, but... And saints, I'm not going to ever... How do I say this? You know, you can't say he doesn't love the Lord. But there are things that I might do as a husband that 
while I love my wife, those actions would sure demonstrate something different. There are certain things that I could do that one might say, well, that are compared to those things that we sin against the Lord, those things that we would bring into our lives that are counter to what the Lord has for us. Those things that I'll just say it would hinder us from laying hold of everything that he has, laying hold of him. And those things, if we had a commensurate thing in our own marriage where it would hinder our relationship, our marriage, to the measure that we hinder our relationship with Jesus, then someone would be justified in saying, do you really love her? Do you really? And I'll just leave that there. Just to say that eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love Him and continue to love Him. Love Him on the daily. Love Him continually. Love his appearing, look for his appearing. Like Boaz, Jesus watches those of the household of faith. Not to say, up, you know, not worthy. No, he's not looking for the failure, he's looking for the love. As corny as that sounds, he's looking for those who are looking for him. He knows who are his fathers. He does. He knows those ones who have valued his father. And he values those ones. And he certainly knows those ones who are looking for him. Those ones who are sitting on the other end of the table, so to speak, waiting to be called up. And he just wants to say, come up. Come up. He's looking for the eye contact. And he gives us everything that we need in order to win him. He gives the oil that those virgins were lacking. We see it in verse 10. God has revealed them to us. Those things that He wants to do for us, all that He wants to give, He's revealed to them through His Spirit. Is there any more, well, any more clear illustration for the oil of God, the oil for our lamp than the Holy Spirit that He offers to us? The Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. Saints, Jesus wants us to win Him. He wants us to take His name and to be proud of it. He wants us to bear His name and to be proud of it, not to walk in pride, but to be so proud to be His. To love Him so that it's our first and foremost thought, day in and day out. He offers His own name to us. He offers us His complete and full and entire affiliation. He wants to attach Himself completely. Not ashamed to call us brethren, and not only not ashamed to call us brethren and family, but desiring that we might be a part of that New Jerusalem bridal company that He wants us to be. Saints, that's a dedication to something unworthy of that dedication to the measure I can't understand. But it sure drives me to want to love Him more. I hope you want to love Him more. I hope that you desire to love Him the way that He loves us. I'm grateful to be in the household, in the family of faith, to be sure. I'm grateful for the opportunity to be a pillar in the temple of God, to be sure. But there's something that's so very personal something that's so very striking to my heart about taking the name of Jesus that he offers to me, that he wants me to take his name. Ah, That strikes me, and that makes me want to be one of him that overcomes. Saints, may that be our desire, to take his name and to take it proudly and in love for the Lord Jesus. And we'll continue next week and wrap up and see what he says to Laodicea as a result of our loving and taking his name. But that's where we'll stop tonight.